Welcome to the Black on Black Education Podcast, where we interview the most brilliant minds and connected hearts to discuss our shared passion for the transformation, the revolution, reimagining, and recreation of education in the Black community. My name is Eva Loren Jean Charles, founder of Black on Black Education and New York City High School teacher. And I'm Jamal Thomas, her partner and dad, education enthusiast. And we're, and we're your, your host. host. Please don't forget to like, comment, share, and subscribe. And most importantly, to enjoy the episode. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Black on Black Education Podcast. Today's episode, you are going to hear a conversation between myself, Eva Loren Jean Charles, my father and co-founder, Jamal Thomas, and Dr. Quinlan of Howard University. We talked about appreciating Black narratives, believing that students can be the answers to the questions we're looking for, and letting students explore science. So I hope you all sit back, relax, and really take in the fact that science is our path forward and that Black children must believe they can be scientists. Hello, folks. Welcome, welcome back to another episode of the Black on Black Education podcast. As always, our guest is going to take over, let us know who they are, what they do, and why they do it. Thank you so much. I'm out. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for having me on this show. I, my name is Dr. Catherine Quinlan. I'm assistant professor in science education at Howard University School of Ed- Education. And I've taught science, uh, mostly biology and chemistry for 16 years at the high school level. And now I prepare pre-service uh, teachers in, in STEM. I love it. I absolutely love it. And so, I, I mean, I got a whole bunch of uh, memories for Howard. Like I've, I've, I've been to the homecoming like at least <laughs> 10 times or something. And we like, really? always, always had like from 1998 to 2008, I might've been out there every year. Like, wow. That's awesome. That's the time. So we already have a love for Howard. Let's get into it. So we haven't had many folks on the podcast to specifically talk about STEM or who have a STEM background. So I'm really, really excited to get into this conversation. And I just want you to start by talking about like this overarching belief in the education system that Black students can't be scientists or that they don't want to be scientists or they're not interested in being scientists. I would love for you to talk a little bit about that and how it makes you feel as someone who teaches science and who prepares science teachers to go into the classroom and a little bit about how we can start to debunk that myth um, and get folks to really get kids into STEM and enjoying um, the beauty that is being being a scientist and or working in the science field. Wow, <laughs> that's a lot there. <laughs> so the first thing I think of, well, first of all, I mean, that is completely not true. I mean, I meet some amazing scientists working at Howard and I just thoroughly enjoy having these kind of scientific conversations with folks like me, <laughs> you know, constantly. And so that belief is, is very much, I guess when we think about where that belief comes from, we need to think about, you know, going back a couple hundreds of years, right? Uh, a lot of beliefs are fluid. A lot of beliefs tend to be uh, embedded in, you know, ideas. Uh, whether it's ideas embedded in society. I mean, think about a lot of anti-Black laws, right? Anti-literacy laws. 
uh, that people don't really realize have been passed down or thinking that have been passed down. And I think a lot of the belief comes from not really, you know, understanding what science is, right? Science is really systematic investigation. And Blacks have been doing that for a long time. <laughs> That's one of the things I'm learning in my, in my research, that Blacks have been carrying out systematic investigations. Uh, it, it, the problem is they're not often highlighted um, or they're often uh, capitalized on, right? And so we don't necessarily talk about that aspect. And, and I think a lot of that comes from our glass half empty thinking mm -hmm. about Blacks and not really being able to see what Blacks can be just like anybody else. It's no, it's no different. We're thinking human beings. <laughs> So, so as we, you know, like, like let's let's do some some systemic investigation, like you know what I mean. Like, let's dive in and, and dig into it a little bit. You know, what what are some of the ways and and and, and places where Black people have been able to integrate, you know, the, the ideas of STEM um, into how we've uh, you know arrived in this country today? Like, you know, it, it's we we've had scientists forever and ever and ever. We we've done incredible things. Um, to enrich, you know, not just this country, but the, the world in general. Um, can you share some of how that, um, you know, should guide people into the STEM field, like like help people understand what the rich history is um, so that they can think more about um, what our future should be in the STEM field? Wow. <laughs> so you're talking about my research now. Yes. <laughs> Which is a lot of what this is based on. I think that, well, first of all, I have to give credit to uh, Dr. Judith Carney, who is a scientist who has done extensive research on the parallels between uh, West Africa and the uh, southern coasts of the United States. And, you know, one of the things she highlights, and it's so true because I've been, you know, keep unfolding as my research goes, is that we don't really talk about how, and this is kind of citing, well, not kind of citing from her, we don't talk about how Africans have Africanized American food systems as much as we talk about how um, Western world have Westernized African food systems, right? Um, and we don't talk about, you know, accounts that people observed, even of the abundance. You know, a lot of researchers right now are doing research on rice irrigation systems that they see parallels between West Africa and the United States. And now people are starting to ask so questions. You said rice irrigation systems? Right, rice okay. irrigation systems, right? Because rice was grown <laughs> um, predominantly and the whole idea was um, enslaved Africans were brought here for different, you know, the thinking was just for labor. But then they began to see, especially in areas uh, like the Southern coast where African-Americans and early Africans, I should say Africans or early African-Americans were left in isolation, right? And, and were able to, because of the swamp and malaria ridden areas, a lot of the foremen didn't venture onto that area. And so blacks were allowed to do a lot of their own development. And so they began to see a lot of the parallels, um, you know, between those cultures that were evolving and you know, and, and, and it still exists today, right? And that's part of my research, looking at 
the remnants of Africa in African-American uh, Gullah Geechee, just to get an idea of the bridge, right? What was what was the word you just used there? African-American Gullah Geechee peoples. Please help me. I I'm, I'm, might be ignorant. What, what, what does that mean? So the Gullah Geechee African-Americans are African-Americans who live in the islands off the coast of South Carolina and Georgia. Hmm. Uh, you think of Guatemala, St. John's, um, St. Helena, Hilton Head. Hilton Head, people don't realize, were predominantly African-Americans. And what happened in the 1950s when malaria was eradicated and people started being interested in building and, and moving there, right? And so you have had a mass movement that removed a lot of the African, imagine, imagine African-Americans owning coastal land, right? Hmm. And so there's a battle right down there right now to get rid of the remaining um, African-Americans who, who, you know, we, we still have a lot of the, the, the enslaved burial grounds of African-Americans that are being um, dug up now to build on. Um, and so I uh, lost my train of thought. <laughs> So yes, so they are people who, African-Americans who, because they were isolated, were able to carry on their language. And, and again, when you think about, you know, languages, I should say, right? Because Africans came from so many different places and, um, and lived together and communicated with each other the best. And um, that's one of the few places that they were in isolation and and we're allowed to carry on, you know, we're able to carry on a lot of the customs. No, th thank you for that. I just, I, I like to research things that I never heard before. That, that's, uh, that, that one was a first for me. So um, go ahead, Eva. Sure. Well, there's a fight for keeping that heritage right now. Yeah. The fight is very alive. The fight is real. And the fight is, <laughs> I want to say hypocritic, right? Because we're talking about all the things that are happening, but at the same time, uh, that's also happening right now, right? And people are acting like it's a done deal and it's not necessarily, I think people just want to, uh, let's find, you know, finalize you now a quote and code of what they think or perceive should be our position in society as well. Mm, absolutely. I absolutely agree. And so I think that there's so much to be said about the way that society has dictated and, and, um, has tracked groups of people into a particular way of being and doesn't recognize that their ability to create irrigation systems, their ability to take the knowledge that they had in, in Western Africa and then make it applicable here in the United States with different climate and different um, land and different access to, to technology and be able to do all those things. They don't recognize it as science. But that comes from a place of truly not understanding um, the historical context in which we live. So I think it's really important um, to debunk that myth that that black children are not interested in science or that science isn't the, isn't something that they can do um, because their their ancestors didn't do it. They absolutely did. It just wasn't written in a in a journal article the way that we do today. So um, I definitely appreciate that. And so I'd love for you to to be able to get a little bit into um, integrating the lived experience of Black people um, into the STEM field because I think that a lot for at least for my students, right? They're like, well, why does this matter to my life right now? Why why should I care about radioactivity right now? So can you just talk a little bit about um, 
the intersection between science and history and why, and how teachers can begin to use that as a way to bring Black students into the STEM field? Sure. I think of a couple of things. Um, my focus is really to allow students to explore science and at the same time learn about their historical past. And there are a couple of curricular examples that I've created. One of the one one of the ones that I created was African rock art image analysis in an article. I share those articles with you. One of the things it delves into is looking at you know, black African products, right? African rock art. The fact that they were able to create this art, you know, our ancestors were able to create this art before, you know, without going to the store. You know, this, this art was preserved for thousands of years. And we can explore, we can ask many different types of questions about it. One of the things I talk about in that article is, you know, one of the things that have happened recently, and I have to be careful what I say here, because one of one of one thing that comes up frequently is what we learn from different indigenous cultures, including Africans, Native Americans, especially about plants, understandings about plants. Uh, people have gained a lot of knowledge on understanding of plants. One example is observing uh, some indigenous Africans, uh, like the Khoisan, who use the Hodea gordini plant as a as an appetite suppressant. And so our own pharmaceutical companies in the Western world wanted to, you know, capitalize on that and uh, use it as a diet pill, right? And it became controversial because now we have technology. You know, now Africans can see what's happening to their products or their knowledge. Um, the other example, one of the things that came up, you might have seen in one of my video clips, was, you know, speaking to the historian where... Early Africans, or rather early African-Americans, right, or, or, or Africans, did not go to American doctors, right? They went to the grannies who picked a plant and did different things. Uh, the issue is there's not enough research on those plants, right? Because, you know, but, but what has ended up happening is, oh boy, that's another story. <laughs> what has ended up happening is uh, people look to see what it is that natives, right, such as Native Africans, Native Americans use for plants. And a lot of the ingredients, even for the pills, right, weeping willow, right, which natives used, is your active ingredient, um, is part of, the, part of the active ingredient in aspirin. Mm. And so, you know, and what the problem again is, because it's extracted, there's more studies done on, you know, the after product created by Western culture than there is done by using things that are natural. And I purposely say this because, again, even though I'm highlighting these assets, you know, I'm not telling people to go out and pick things you're unfamiliar with without it being systematically looked at and understood. Uh, unfortunately, it has been, well, I guess fortunately too, because we have modern medicine, it's been repackaged in a way that, uh, that gives, I want to say, <laughs> that require that doesn't. It's not as accessible, and yet is as it's accessible. It, in other words, the access has changed, right? Um, and the meaning behind it has changed. And in some ways, you know, hey, we, you know, when we need those painkillers for different reasons or you know different pills, we are grateful for them. But it's really recognizing 
uh, recognizing where a lot of our understandings and a lot of our thinkings, thinking comes from, right? We have influenced society just as much as society has influenced us. Right. You know, think about your favorite foods. What's your favorite fruit? Right now, I'm going to say grapes. I'm going to say grapes. Okay. <laughs> what about you? Clementines. Okay, so none of those came on the list. Does anybody, <laughs> anybody likes watermelons? I love watermelon. All right, here we go. Yeah. Melons? I, 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 I always avoid saying that that's my favorite just because, you know what I mean, it's the cliche. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Throw the stereotype out of here. We love watermelon. Okra. You got to know how to cook. Everybody, everybody don't know how to do, no, no, know what to do with okra, but yes, <laughs> I, I, I like okra. Yes, you'll be amazed by the number of foods that actually came here from Africa. Mm. Africans were growing. So I'm really, really excited about this curriculum because uh, it really situates, my goal is to situate, you know, our heritage and our black assets and African-American assets uh, in our curriculum, uh, because there's a great deal there. I mean, just don't, it's just not packaged in a way that allow people to think and understand uh, the progressive nature of it. Mm. <laughs> so, so in thinking about that and, and thinking about how it is packaged, um, I, th I think one of the things that's probably so challenging for, for students is the idea um, of, of how we do standardized testing and how it's just, I have to remember this, I got to remember this, I got to remember this. It's, it's, it's all about how much they can remember all of these particular things. Um, but, you know, science is obviously a part of everything and it's, and, and it's largely a part of some of students' experience, um, you know, what, what do you feel the problem is in, in how schools are doing this and how they might do a better job of prioritizing students' experience and connecting that to their understanding of science to help them develop what we would call a love of, of, of science? Well, I think a lot of the challenges come from all of us really letting go, <laughs> letting go of the way we've been institutionalized, right, to believe that there's a right answer or just one or one right answer and liking the neat and tendi, tidy answers and not necessarily wanting things to be a little messy. You know, I mean, I'm guilty a little bit of that too. And one of the things I've had to learn to do is let go and really focus on what skills are students developing. I think the biggest eye-opener for me in, in what skills were my students developing are two things. When I was doing my doctoral dissertation and one year when I had students in bio and then the, the year later I had them in chemistry. You know, it's really an aha moment to see what did students retain and what really mattered, right, from one year to the next. And you begin to see that those process skills, those skills that carry over for the future, and to carry with them, those skills that are difficult are what's most important. The challenge is because students are used to giving right or wrong answers or uh, only thinking that, only thinking that they have to know everything. It's hard to 
it's it's hard to be comfortable not knowing, mm. right? Imagine being a teacher, you're doing an exploration. You're not expert at. Your students can be expert at it and you're not giving a right answer. And so that's something I think about when I create this you know, curriculum and how can I package this in such a way that it's not just treated as knowledge to be disseminated, but an opportunity for students to explore. It is hard. <laughs> um, I don't know if I answered the question. You did, you definitely did. And, and, and sometimes I feel like the way people feel about science, it, you know, that, that um, it affects the ability to do what you just, you know, I, I identified. Like people think about science as this is science and this is the way things are. And if you don't think that it's this way, then, you know, you know you, you're somehow a crazy person because you don't believe in science. Um, and so, you know, I, I think sometimes that can lead to a lack of exploration. Um, and, and, you know, I, 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 uh, I relish the opportunity to continue to hear how science teachers um, wrestle with that because I, I feel like that's that that is their ability um, to get students to you know make that like aha like hmm like you know like all, all this inquisitive look this inquisitive feel and make them curious in a way that they might not have otherwise been absolutely absolutely and so I, I would love for like in the next section for us to talk a little bit about your years as an actual science educator in the classroom and how it's informed the research that you're doing but also how it's informed your understanding of what needs to happen in order to push the needle forward in building that excitement and enrichment uh, for kids when they think about they think about science and their ability to be a part of it absolutely wow I, I think that what happened, okay, well, one of my biggest aha moments was doing my d dissertation. And one of the things I came to see was, because I did, I used Think Aloud protocols because I wanted just to know what is students thinking. <laughs> and I started to see that, you know, students were responding with keywords as, as correct answers, that those correct answers didn't mean they understood. And so I started thinking about how can I get them talking? The interesting thing is back then, I didn't even know that they had all these different, you know, I don't know, I didn't stumble upon a lot of the research about that, knowing that there's a whole field about, you know, talk and argumentation or things that I, I write about now. And so in, in, in trying to help students to develop skills and to engage in conversation, I've changed a lot of the way I, I go about teaching them using a longer explorations. For example, I launched a science fair years ago that, uh, you know, carried on for years and included longer and longer pro projects where students got to explore topics of their interest related to biology or related to chemistry. And it, it didn't matter what their interest was. For example, a student might have chosen music. And then I was able to help them to connect, you know, how it is, you know, with the biology, right? She was interested in the impact of music on the brain or, you know, memory. And so, you know, one student, you know, some students in it, music, memory experiments, for example. And she was looking at the difference between adults and, and, and teens. And another student is interested in malaria. And it, the interesting thing is, I, I visually remember having this conversation with the student who 
uh, was an English language learner. And coming to me talking about the data, you know, like, what does this mean? What does this graph mean? And having those type of conversation and one student who wanted to learn, talk about race and, you know, geographically interviewed students from different areas, you know, about color and race and mapping where they are. And so it was interesting because we got to link their interests with the biology. It's an enormous amount of work. And I, I can never forget that that year, the long, when I made the project the longest, that following year, students were passing by saying hi, which <laughs> I was like, no, look, I'm, I'm, I'm bio, I'm strict. So, <laughs> but it was amazing because they became the experts, you know, explaining this work to the community. And it was a true exploration. It wasn't just, you know, go find a project, do a, do a demo. You know, they really went through creating their questions they went through collecting their data. They went through uh, presenting it and all of, you know, like a scientist. And so I feel like that is, those are skills that will carry you over later on. You know, they went through writing it up and things like that. But I think that one of the things that came out of my teaching, my K-12 teaching experience is being told to include diversity right? And apparently because you're black, you're supposed to know what that means. <laughs> Include diversity. And so I know that a lot of people were including, you know, excerpts of scientists, which was great. I think the difficulty I had was I always was trying to connect it back to the science we were learning. Feeling like, okay, I, I wanted to make sure I connected and we talked about it. The problem is, if it just took an enormous amount of time, you know, to actually meaningfully integrate that. And so, you know, that led me to really thinking about the work that I'm doing now. And, uh, you know, I think I've paved out a lifetime of work there. <laughs> Absolutely. Paved out a lifelong job of creating lessons that are diverse in thought and diverse in terms of the information being provided to students. And so I want to give you the opportunity. We see sitting right behind you something special, something beautiful. If you could pull it up for folks to see more clearly, talk a little bit about a resource that you have created and provided that is helping do just this, create the intersections and allowing students to push past just the answers on a test but to really understanding what it means to create a scientific question and then continue to and, and continue to use that question to do science as a practice. I think a lot of kids think about science as a class that you go to, not as something that is done, a verb. Um, so talk a little bit about your book and, and how it's used as a as a um, an ability for teachers and for the students who read it to understand more about doing science. Sure, thank you. <laughs> so this well, I have to tell you, I'm a mother. So a mother of eight, who, well, not of eight, of an eight-year-old, sorry. Oh. Eight-year-old. I only have one. Two completely different. Well, like, well, a mother of an eight-year-old gets you like, okay. And a mother of an eight gets you like, okay. Like. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm a mother of an eight-year-old, and he's an early reader. And I think that I struggled to, as I read to him, I really struggled with, 
trying to see where he can appreciate, you know, black narratives, African American narratives in the books he was reading. And I found a few series, but they weren't as long as the other series that promoting promoted Western culture. So part of it was wanting to give him and other black children, you know, to allow them to see themselves in adventurous chapter book series. And the other part of it was also knowing that sometimes with science, especially for elementary teachers, it's a long, it's a long shot, right? Because you, you're preparing students to read and do math. And sometimes the connection with literacy is not always obvious. And so I wrote this book. I'll show you some pictures. <laughs> they were in their tent. <laughs> they were in their grandma's house digging and having adventurous adventures. And so what I did, you get to see some petroglyphs. I connected it to some of my work and with talking about African rock art. Uh, and so you see some petroglyphs and you go on this long adventure and they get to, to meet some of the koi sands. So they get to learn a little bit about indigenous, but at the same time, it's really a story about kids who get transported in this adventure. <laughs> so for me, I integrated ideas about black culture, everyday culture, integrated ideas about science and there's a little bit of me and the protagonist, of course, even though he's a boy. And then a little bit of, you know, we all have these barbecues, don't we? <laughs> At grandma's house. And so, you know, I wanted to, I want to real to want to normalize in many ways. I think in the classroom, students, learning about black narratives and science at the same time right. in meaningful ways. Right. And, and, and a book is definitely a fantastic way to do that. Um, and, and I'm sure that, you know, you're, you're having a positive effect. Um, you know, in, in, in general, though, you know, something that I hear when I when I go out and I talk to students is that in education in general and science in particular, you know, oftentimes students are just bored. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it's not... Um, you know, it's not engaging. It, it, it's it's not, you know, interesting to them. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what projects, you know, outside of the book that you've been able to do um, that allow for for students and teachers, um, because sometimes the teachers are bored, too. Like it's like, like they're, you know, they're, they're looking at, this, you know, this 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 textbook that um, was written originally, you know, 40 years ago, and then they like make these little changes, you know, over the course of time. And it's just it, like, like where, where everybody feels like, wow, you know, I can't pass this test on the region. So why does a student have to pass this test, you know, on, on, on the region? So, you know, what, what are some of the things that you do to make it um, a little more interesting to students and, and, and to engage them um, more than they might otherwise have been? Sure. Well, again, I, one of the, the biggest thing I did was the uh, science fair. I literally integrated it with the content, but also I, I used a lot of other contexts. Uh, for example, you know, in biology, typically we talk about what is life, right? 
we talk about cells and all these different things. And I, I used it to engage in conversations about, let's talk about life in space, right? Let's talk about what you might look for. And that, that's related to my article in astrobiology. You know, what might you look for if you were in space versus on Earth, right? Because scientists are studying uh, extreme environments here on Earth, areas like National Yellowstone National Park and other areas. And so I engage students in these type of discussion. I found it hard to do the same exact same thing every year because, like you said, I got bored. <laughs> so I vary them, just really allowing students to, for me, the biggest thing is constructing your own understanding. Because if I talk to you about it, then I tell you what I know. If you can't talk to me about it, then the possibility exists you didn't really learn it. And so that's why I use a lot of argumentation, which is a, a pedagogy that, from what I remember, began in, in England. And it's extremely difficult. You know, the literature shows it's extremely challenging for teachers to implement because it does require a completely different predisposition and openness to, to not needing to be correct. So, so that 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 that's uh, you being open to the student arguing arguing with you or debating you on the subject. Is that what that? Right, but not only that. It's really it's 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 guiding the student to look at evidence and understanding even you know how did scientists even come to think the things that they do think or believe, right? Some of which are accidental, right, and some of which are interesting <laughs> just to think about how they came to know some of the things you know it's it's you know students are usually amazed that wow you know we believe that but you know, how did we get there mm -hmm. yeah. no i love that and that it's super exciting to think about think about thinking right getting into metacognition and allowing students to really go back and say like okay how, what did other people have to do in order to come up with this because i think that for me even thinking back as a, as a scientist it was like how in the world did they figure this out like i could never i can't do this thing called science because i have no idea how they even came up and figured this thing out so exactly what you're saying is making it more interesting is putting them in the shoes of the people who at one point did not know the thing and then figured out the thing and what the lineage of that is, the 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 thinking process that has to happen in order for you to be able to answer questions that we might not have even thought were questions. And there are going to be questions that get answered forever that we didn't even know that there were things that needed to be asked. So in that process of thinking about thinking, it's it, it's it's really cool to to see how you bring in the discussion piece into a science classroom. Let, let's let's do a thought experiment there, and this is as much for me as as for any teachers or students who are listening to it. When I go across a bridge, I look at the bridge, and I'm like, how like you know, <laughs> Can you walk us through a little bit? Just, you know, let's do some science. Like, what, what was the scientific method to say, yeah, we can figure out how to get over there? Because for me, you know what I mean? I'd have been like, I'm just staying over here. because That looks crazy and impossible. So can you walk us a little bit through what that even method looks or feels like? So not particularly in building a bridge, but what would a scientist do if they wanted to figure out how to build a bridge? 
I think we would we would also gather some engineers, right? <laughs> we would absolutely need them. <laughs> and so I think that this is not something we do we do as well. Thanks for reminding me. I, I do a lot, quite a bit of engineering. Uh, this and well, it's called engineering design. And I do have to say, even with the argumentation, didn't I did not come up with it. I do use, you know, I want to give credit. Of course, <laughs> where credit is due, and I, I do use, for example. Uh, Dr. Jonathan Osborne and Sybil, Dr. Sybil Erdogan's work. Uh, they did an amazing work. I do. I use that a lot in my uh, teacher training. But I also use engineering design methods, and uh, I love to use those in my classroom, in my in my teacher classroom. Interestingly, students usually enjoy it, uh, even even uh, elementary or even pre-service, but. A lot of research shows because it's so intricate. It's it requires so many different things to think about that even if sometimes students enjoy it, it's you know it's it's complex and so you need a lot of repetitious ways of thinking about it. But you again, you're just designing sometimes trial and error as well, right? But it's also looking at what other people have done. You know, and it's something that you know, I actually learned from a, a scientist I worked with who was training scientists and engineers. Sometimes people forget to let's look at what people have done as well. Mm. Right. We don't have to think of everything from scratch. We can try, <laughs> you know, we can build in that as well as asking questions within the parameter. Let's build a prototype. Let's test it out. Let's see if it works. Mm. Uh, and that's something I do embed in in my courses so that they can, you know, get involved in thinking in engineering. Absolutely. It's it's really just that trial and error. It's how teaching students how to provide, how to create testable questions, how to create a model. Like, I love the modeling one. So like, we are not going to actually be able to build a bridge, but what would you do if I gave you a model of a lake? How would you figure out how to create a bridge? And then they can mimic what the what the engineering practice would be um, on on the on the on the flip side. So I re I love that, and I think that I mean that is science, right? Science is finding a testable question, exactly like you said, a systemic uh, systemic way of investigating something. And so the the only way to do that is through trial and error. And so I think it's super important to bring that into the conversation about how we really get students to buy in to STEM, buy into science as something that they can do and buy into the fact that there is a long history of people of color, indigenous people, African peoples doing science that just hasn't been recognized for what they've done. And so I think that that is super important as well. And so kind of rounding out into our last question, we just wanted to start to think a little bit about technology in general. So we know science is a huge part of technology, but it comes together with engineers and, and computer scientists and all sorts of um, other people come together to build the technologies that we know. Talk a little bit about how technology can be used in the classroom, how you've used it in the classroom, and how we can make sure that it is a tool to attain mastery rather than something that we're shoving in front of kids to babysit them. <laughs> wow. So, you know, it's funny you said that because that's always been the biggest, one of my big concerns, even before COVID. And so one of my biggest concern when it came came to technology is how can we use it to develop critical thinking skills? You know, and so one of the things that, um, well, 
<laughs> I did something un unconventional, Th something that I think most instructional technology courses maybe don't necessarily use, but I had my students code, mm. you know, and coincidentally, what was nice ab about, uh, about that is I realized afterwards my son was learning to code too in kindergarten. Mm. And so I think that exposing, you know, students to those things, even from young, uh, not underestimating that, that they could figure this out, right? Because it's just, it's patterns. It's always important to ask, well, why are we using it? Is it just to replace what they're learning? What is it just to replace paper? Mm -hmm. Um, are they really learning something or are they, I mean, not everything just because they're on the computer playing doesn't necessarily mean it's as meaningful as if they were sitting there constructing something, right? Uh, is it passive learning? You know, those are considerations. And so even when I thought about when I was in integrating instructional technology, a lot of the examples, I actually included engineering design in, in my technology aspects because I really wanted to, to move towards more meaningful types of learning. And of course, now we have the COVID pandemic, right? <laughs> and now people really have to think about that. Absolutely. And so it's, you know, for me, it's, 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 it's validated those types of experiences and examples because now we really have to think about it. Mm -hmm. Whereas what kind of sort of was optional, <laughs> you know, us using it to engage rather than to uh, try to babysit because now that students are on it all the time, it's, you know, it's not as effective a tool, right? Because, you know, what are you going to do? No, I, I, I definitely understand that. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, this uh, this has been fantastic. I definitely feel like I have a, a, a better understanding of science than I did uh, 40 minutes ago. So, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I thank you for that. Uh, what we generally do as our last question is we give an opportunity for our guests to ask uh, any question they might have of us. So um, is there anything you'd like, uh, like us to share? Oh, good question. <laughs> so, what what is your um, trajectory as far as your show? Do you have, uh, you know, what do you have in mind? Let's just say a year from now, five years from now. You know, what do you want to see happen? Absolutely. I feel like people always ask in terms of macro. Most people don't necessarily ask in terms of just the podcast. So I actually love this question. Um, when I think a year from now, a year and a half from now, I just think it's continuing to, to cultivate conversation. Um, I don't know about you, but I don't know a lot of, of podcasts that are specifically centered around how do we better support uh, students of color through the system that is education. So I just feel really grateful to be a part of cultivating conversation that is specifically about um, how to support black students. And I don't think that next year, the year after that, or like 
10 years from now, folks are going to still be asking very similar questions. And I'm grateful that we'll be a part of being able to answer it by just continuing to have really innovative and incredible folks on to talk about how they have been able to reach students and be a part of providing a quality education um, to students of color. And, and, and the only thing I'd add is, you know, whether it's in the next three years, being able to get like, a, you know, Miguel Cardone, you know, or the, the, the secretary of education on um, or, you know, whoever the next secretary of education. So within the next five years, being able to um, have an influential enough podcast to um, to get you know that type of person who um, is creating policy for. Uh, for it all and, and, and ask them questions um, and pin them down in a way where they say, oh, you said we were going to do this and then be able to hold their feet to the fire that that's exactly. You got it on camera. Uh, you, you got know, it on camera. After, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that that would be an incredible um, step. Um, Absolutely. So we so much appreciate the time with you and we want to give you the opportunity, like, you know, in what ways should, uh, you know, should the audience engage with you? Uh, where should they engage with you? You know, what, what are the areas of support you might need? Um, and any last thoughts that you might want to share? Um, you know, now's the time. Absolutely. Well, um, you can visit, they can visit my group, Visibility and Representation. And I believe I shared that link with you and Facebook. So they're welcome to, you know, engage with me there. We'll make sure that's on the, on the, uh, we'll, we'll make sure to add that to the, like, we don't really have like show notes, but we'll, we'll get that out there as well. Go ahead. And they can check out my book, my, my author page, keystonepassage.com. <laughs> Absolutely. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. We appreciate it. You gave us so much to think about in terms of STEM and, and making the intersections and the conversations um, and bringing it into the fold around education. So we really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was my honor. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. <laughs>